Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you, as always, for subscribing, downloading, rating, letting people know about the programme. We really appreciate it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, scienceatnewstalk.com, or you can tweet us. We're at News Talk Science. Coming up on this week's episode, elephants probably have the sharpest sense of smell in a species because they have 2,000 distinct genes associated with it. But why is scent so complicated, even in humans? And how can we still don't understand why things smell the way they do? We'll be finding out in a few minutes' time. But first, it's time to look back at some of the breaking stories from the world of science this week. We're joined by Dr. Oren Kennedy from RCSI and double Dr. Lara Dungan. Great to have you back, Lara. Oren, our first story has to do with a return to the moon. So this is the Artemis program, Jonathan. And Artemis, why is it called that? It's the twin sister of Apollo in Greek mythology. And that was the first mission that went to the moon in the 70s. Artemis 1 last November went up and was the furthest craft uh, to go, uh, craft that went furthest away from the Earth, went around the moon, and it's designed to test uh, carrying humans around there. And the actual craft that they're traveling in is called Orion, and that's the hunting partner in Greek mythology of Artemis. So it's it's an amazing program. They have uh, the most powerful rocket ever used. That's 8.8 million pounds of thrust to get it out of the Earth. And uh, it went up there. Do you know what the, the escape velocity of the Earth is to get any of these craft up into space? It's 11.2 kilometers per second. So those things look slow when they're taken off, but these things are flying up towards the moon. Um, and the on the first Artemis, it had um, something that I thought was great. They're called moonikins. That's mannequins that are kitted out in spacesuits and they're testing the suits, but there's no humans in them. So there are moonikins, mannequins wearing spacesuits. And that went up around the moon before Christmas and uh, tested out the environment. And now Artemis 2 has uh, four announced four um, passengers. And there is the first woman, first female to travel to the moon on lunar mission. That's Christina Koch. She's an engineer, and there's also Victor Glover, who's a U.S. Navy aviator, and he's the first African-American to be on a lunar um, mission. And then you have uh, Jeremy Hansen, who's the first Canadian, who's getting less press for that reason, but uh, he's also on it. And then we have uh, the last the last is Reed Wiseman. He's the commander of the mission. So they're going to go uh, and do a flight path around the moon, and they'll actually be the farthest traveling humans from Earth so far. And they're going to do a, a route around the moon and then come back and splash down in the Pacific Ocean uh, next year. So uh, it's amazing stuff, amazing progress. You know, going back to the moon, it seems like old news in some ways, but it's really not. This is sort of cutting edge stuff and it's really exciting. And they're going to, you know, this is the plan for this Artemis program is to have a, is to return to the moon for sure, but it's to uh, create a sort of a sustainable way of getting there and to use it as a launch pad to get to Mars eventually. So amazing stuff. They're not really going to the moon though, are they? Well, they've got around the moon, yeah, they will, and they'll use it. They will, in this program, they'll land on the moon again. That's the plan. I think that's in 2025 or six or something, and uh, they, they want to kind of get there. They're just kind of taking a train ride, essentially. Kind of, yeah, kind of, kind of, but it's still, it's still amazing, I think. <laughs> no, 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 no it, 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 is, it is great, but I kind of feel like it's not really landing on the moon because because that is the pinnacle of all space exploration so far. I mean, obviously, it was amazing um, to see rovers land on Mars and so on. But actually, touchdown, feet down, boots on the moon is being on the moon, I think. It's good, I suppose, to get people amped about it. I guess this is sort of like the, the pre-show. Um, but uh, I'm just wondering... The, the moonikins you were talking about, presumably they were they were filled with sensors and so on to test, 
you know what it's like and so on yeah exactly yeah yeah it's you can actually see pictures of it it's really cool right there's a, a moonikin <laughs> sitting in the seat in the spacesuit and, and, and it's full of sensors and all that kind of stuff and it just uh it's just sitting in the in the chair in the pod or whatever and they also have for some reason i couldn't find out why but they also have a uh snoopy and a sean the sheep doll in artemis one and you can see that uh floating around in pictures online as well so there you go not sure why they're there but they're the passengers on artemis one I think they're there to give a facade of personality to the astronauts who um, I have I have interviewed so many on this program and they are really they are the Munikins. They are completely automatons when you when you interview um, an astronaut. They they, they give you the, the company. Yeah, they're very they, they give you a very polished um, interview that you feel they've given a thousand times before and you, you, just, uh, you can't crack the surface. Um, but it'd be really interesting to see how, how the public, you know, take you landing back on the moon uh, and particularly in these in these present times whether or not people will believe that we landed on the moon the second time but i suppose we'll have better technology to really prove it uh this time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i presume it'll be light live fed or something this time around you know and uh i think it's it is a bit less exciting you know it's not headline news because we've done it before and it was you know 50 years ago but i think you know the the, the real big story is that they are trying to make this much more doable you know the way the last time it was like once off throw all the money that the us had at it but this is i think the idea is to make this easier to do you know more sustainable go there regularly you know and have it have it kind of habitable and permanently manned and all that kind of stuff over the next 10 years so i think that's the that's probably the main part of the story but it's a bit less headlining i suppose you know no no look i mean all joking aside it's human spaceflight which is always in um very risky and um you know the the payoff is sometimes questionable for a flight like this but it it is uh it's going to be exciting and um and i hadn't considered that the that humans haven't gone further than a little bit beyond the moon because uh, because we've been talking about mars for so long it's funny yeah you know you've got you pine talking about mars and you've got pioneer that went out to uh you know went out to neptune back in the 70s and 80s so you, you think this stuff is stuff that we've done but humans uh, th- these guys will be the farthest from earth if you get me as in they're just going around the moon uh, farthest and i think it's four forty thousand kilometers whatever it is from the moon surface something like that but it's uh yeah they'll technically be the farthest uh, and artemis one is the farthest uh spacecraft that was designed to carry humans that's gone you know farthest from the earth and then these guys will be the furthest humans from earth so yeah those are pretty cool stats so very cool um yeah very cool indeed uh lara our second story is a little bit closer to home and less um inspiring it's to do with south ocean circulation what is that Yes, it's entirely less inspiring. Um, To give you a basic idea of what it is, when the ice forms in the Antarctic, it leaves behind very, very salty water because the salt won't freeze as easily. And that water is very heavy and it drops right the way down to the very bottom of the ocean. And it makes its way all across the ocean. And as it starts to rise, as it becomes less salty, it brings all the nutrients that are at the bottom of the ocean. So everything that dies goes to the bottom of the ocean and it's full of nutrients. And this is absolutely essential for life on Earth. And it's been here for the entirety of humanity. Um, Without it, fish can't live, they can't eat. And then there's all the knock-on effects after that. And what is happening as the polar ice caps melt, and this is research that was published last week in Nature magazine um, from the Australian Research Council's Centre for Excellence in Antarctic Science. And what they found is that as the ice caps melt, they're obviously producing fresh water. The fresh water has not got salt in it. So it's making this salty water in the Antarctic very light and it's not sinking as rapidly, which means that this overturning in the ocean, so this bottom of the ocean water coming to the top to feed everything and everyone in the ocean is probably going to ease off a huge amount and potentially stop 
So they reckon by about 2050, it'll be reduced by about 40%. And that's as far as they've done their mapping and their calculations. They don't think for a second it's going to stop in 2050. They think it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And obviously their point, which is the point we make almost every week on the show, is that we need to stop the the rapid melting of the ice caps and we need to stop climate change. Otherwise, I mean, this is obviously largely located in the ocean, but this will massively affect weather patterns as well. It's estimated that there will be a significant reduction in rainfall in the Southern Hemisphere. There's already a, a reduction in rainfall in the Southern Hemisphere compared to the Northern Hemisphere. They cannot do with any less rain as it is. So, I mean, this could be not only problems for all ocean life, but massive droughts and massive problems for humanity. The idea of that, that um, what's a Jake Gyllenhaal movie, The Day After Tomorrow, is based on this concept. I never watched it because it looked so depressing. But now it's our real life, which is lovely. <laughs> Super. Um, the, the the way to measure this is as it's sinking. Is that right? Because presumably once it gets to the bottom of the ocean, this sort of uh, transfer of that salty water is much more difficult to, to tra- track because of just the technology required. Exactly. Yeah. So they measure it as it's sinking. Um, and and it, this isn't the kind of thing that happens over days or, or weeks. It, this happens over years and decades. So, you know, it's not the kind of thing that stops overnight, but they are estimating from the reduction in what's sinking that this will slow over the next, say, 30 years and, and ongoing, obviously. Um, okay, uh, Laura, thanks for that. Our third story, um, Oren, has to do with plants that are screaming. <laughs> Yep, this story reminded me a little bit of Little Shop of Horrors, that movie from the 80s about uh, you know plants that come alive and scream and eat people. But it's a story that's been out there, or it's an idea that's been out there for some time. And this study sort of adds a little bit more detail to it, I suppose. That, and the, the, the idea is that plants respond much more than you would think to their surroundings. So um, uh, yeah, it gives us a little bit more detail. And in this case, it's on ultrasonic emissions. So these plants are creating ultrasonic emissions or sounds when they're either damaged or thirsty. And the work was done by a group in plant science in Tel Aviv University in Israel. And they they literally listened to the sounds created by tomato plants and tobacco plants. So that's not something I thought I would ever hear myself say. But they recorded those plants. And when things were going okay, those plants produced about one sound per hour. So what makes the sounds? They don't know exactly, but it's um, most likely because plants are basically, they have a lot of tubes in them that water is traveling through. And anybody who hears the heating go on in their house knows how, you know, a system like that can create sound. And that's the same source here. But one of those sounds um, per hour when things are okay, and when the plants are stressed out, it goes up to 30 to 50 uh, sounds per hour. Some of the comments on the paper, you know, they have authors that aren't involved in the study. They're, they make they make that uh, point. You know, these are emitting sounds. It does seem to go up with stress, but we're not suggesting that uh, um, there's any kind of communication involved here, you know. But it is, it is a very interesting thing. And the, the point that they do make is that if those sounds are there and they're being made and they can be detected by other uh, things in the environment, it probably is something that informs the, the, the kind of local environment, the micro environment. These sounds can be heard up to two, three meters away. So it, it might, um, they don't know this yet, but they're suggesting it might uh, influence whether the insects are going to, you know, pollinate their legs and, and it could affect the uh, uh, environment that they're in some way, you know, by these sounds. But it's not, it's not, a, it's not a communication per se, even though it does sound like a cool, a cool idea. So how have we not done this before? How have we not listened to plants and um, and realized that they made these sort of sounds? 
No, I think what it is, I think it's both both the injuries or insults, if you like, that they caused in this was uh, dehydration, so not watering the plants and cutting the stems. So in both cases, I think this is down to interrupting those tubes that carry the water. So in one way, it's because there's not enough water when you dehydrate them. And in the other way, it's because you cut them so the water can't flow as cleanly through them. And in each case, it's just literally the fact that you have air bubbles in a water system. So the, these... So these sort of noises, um, they, they don't call them screams, do they? Um, they are uh, much more frequent when they when they um, when they're stressed. They emit more of these. And is that? Uh, do we think that's a warning sign for other plants? It's a good question. It's a good question. I don't think it's anything to do with the technology that they've used. I think I think it might just be an evolution of the research that this group are doing, the way that they listen at a specific frequency to these plants and that, and how they've uh, how they've done the actual studies, the kind of resolution of the measurements that they get. I think it's as simple as that. Yeah. So this is a physical thing. It's a mechanical thing rather than anything else. Right. Okay. Yeah. The other thing that they mentioned, which was interesting, was that this could be something that could be um, exploited to optimize irrigation systems and things like that. You know. So they they suggested that uh, you know I end agricultural systems could have these uh, these things listened to and uh, optimize the irrigation. So who knows if that would work, but it was another idea. That sounds like someone desperately trying for an impact of their research statement uh, to me. I'm not entirely sure it's feasible to start putting in ultrasonic microphones around your field to see if they need watering. I mean, if there's easier ways of doing that, right? Uh, Lara, our final story has to do with spinal fluid and a really interesting piece of research. There was research done back in 2019 um, where neuroscientists proved that there are strong waves of CSF or cerebrospinal fluid. So that's the watery type fluid that bathes our brain and spinal cord. And they wash through the brain when we're asleep. So they're actually come in these waves of strong washing. And they think that that's one of the reasons why sleep is so important. I suppose if you use the example of, of you have a tub of water and you want to wash your clothes and you just throw your clothes in and leave them there for a few days, they're probably not going to get that clean. But if you swish them around as hard as you can, a lot of the, the dirt is likely to come out. Um, and this new research was questioning, look, if we can do this when we're asleep, can we encourage this while we're awake as well? So... It's, it's a kind of a theory, a little bit like what Oren was discussing with the, the pipes and the flow in the plants. So if there's a lot of blood flow in the brain, it suppresses the cerebrospinal fluid from coming in because there's a very limited amount of space in the brain. And if it's full of blood, it can't be full of the fluid. And then when that blood flow ebbs or eases off, the fluid rushes back in. Now, it's it's a lot more dramatic sounding than it actually is. But they tried to activate the brain and they used six healthy volunteers and they showed them a flickering checkerboard pattern. And this really caused the the neural activity to increase. And then obviously when neural activity increases, so does blood flow. And then when they turned it off, they used a a multitude of, of electrodes and functional MRI to look and see what happened with the cerebrospinal fluid. And they did find that there was, a, I suppose, a, a rush of cerebrospinal fluid to fill the pressure void that the, the blood had left when it ebbed out of the brain after this activity. Now, it's interesting in theory, but I suppose, what, what is the point of it? Now, there has been some research in mice to show that toxic proteins linked to Alzheimer's or Parkinson's can be reduced by increasing the flow of cerebrospinal fluid. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the sleep pattern and the big flow of cerebrospinal fluid that comes in when you're asleep was a lot more significant than this awake pattern. So you kind of have to ask, would you not just ask people to have a good night's sleep? And I know that's easier said than done, obviously, for a lot of us. But 
I, I'm not sure how utterly useful this is going to be in a therapeutic way, but it is very interesting. And look, if there is a way for it to help wash away the, the proteins that are involved in Alzheimer's, which are notoriously difficult to remove and very sticky, then maybe it would be exciting. But I just don't see people sitting all day in front of flickering checkerboards to try and wash their brains out. Is it that it was just a cognitively difficult task or was there something else going on with this flashing checkerboard? What was the point of it? It's not necessarily cognitively difficult, but it, it recruits a lot of different parts of your brain and it's very high impact. So it's it's actually these kind of flickering lights or something that is so high impact and actually activate an epileptic seizure. So it actually causes your brain to sort of just overwork for a few minutes because it's just trying to make sense of what on earth it's seeing. And all that work requires energy, which requires blood flow. So it's not cognitively difficult, but the brain doesn't understand it. So it's trying to understand and rationalize. Okay. Um, and then... The the idea is that you you might be able to in, increase the washing out of these particular proteins, but you think um, it's nothing in comparison to a good night's sleep. I don't suppose that there are some uh, patients who who can't um, benefit during the night, whether due to lack of sleep or the fact that it doesn't happen when they're asleep. I presume it happens to everyone if you're asleep, does it? It it does, yeah. And it is part of the standard sort of sleep. Now, I suppose really if you wanted to try and do something, it would be to try and increase the flow while you're asleep, perhaps. Now, again, obviously your eyes are closed, so you're not looking at all these flashing neural patterns. But I mean, it's very interesting and it's potentially exciting. I do not think that this has therapeutic benefit, but, but you know, that's where all research begins. So it's, it's really good research. Dr. Lara Dungan and Dr. Oren Kennedy, thanks very much for joining us. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae, where if you'd like to contact us, you can WhatsApp us 087-1400-106. Uh, you can also email us science at newstalk.com. Now, have we smelled every smell there is to smell in the world? My next guest hopes the answer is no. His latest research has been examining how odour activates our human receptors. Dr. Ashish Maglik is Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Chemistry at the University of California in San Francisco. He joins me now. Um, welcome to the programme. I think it's probably the most underappreciated um, of our senses, isn't it, uh, Ashish? The, the sense of smell. Yeah, you know, the way I think of it is, um, you know, we as we grow up, we, we have this kind of really great way of thinking about colour. You know, when we're young, we think about how different primary colors like red, green, and blue can be mixed to give basically any color. And you know, my daughter, who's a five-year-old right now, is kind of going through this exercise herself. But if I asked you in the same way, you know, um, tell me, you know, what are the kind of components that give rise to the smell of a rose or a daffodil or some other flower or, or grass? It's very hard for you to kind of break it down and say, well, you know, there's this kind of component and that component, and that together gives rise to this problem. And so that fundamentally is the problem that we're interested in, and it turns out to be scientifically a very challenging one. Yeah. So, I mean, do we have building blocks for scent in that way or is it just a totally different mode of perception? Yeah. And this is where, you know, we're going to get a little bit deeper into the science and how this all works. Um, it turns out the way that vision works, our, our ability to detect different colors, that all works really kind of that same red, green, blue idea. It turns out that our body makes different receptors, each of which is tuned to sense, you know, red light or green light or blue light. And then what the brain does is it puts that information together and says a little bit of red, a little bit of blue, it gives you a little bit of purple. And that's really how like, you know, our, our, our sense of vision works. Now, it turns out that for our sense of smell, the body makes 400 different receptors, so 400 different channels like that to allow us to sense the almost tens of thousands or millions of different smells that we can smell. And the logic of how the chemical structure of a smell molecule 
interacts with those 400 receptor molecules has been very hard to understand. And that's really the, the fundamental problem is we don't know what is the mapping of a shape of a chemical and those 400 receptors. So the first thing that's popping into my mind is, you know, the the driving force of evolution. Why do we need to be able to smell so many different combinations of things? Surely we need to smell if something's gone off, if something is sweet and likely to have a lot of calories, and that's it. What? Why on earth would we have developed such a complicated way of detecting odor? Yeah, for mammals, certainly this is a really important aspect of of what we do. So, you know, if you think about our sense of smell, it's deeply tied. So obviously the, the base cases for smell are what you mentioned. You know, we, we definitely don't want to eat something that's gone bad and get sick. And we probably want to be able to find where some food is. And maybe there's a few few little receptors for that kind of thing. But, you know, if you think about what smell does for you every day, it's it's not just those things. It's deeply tied to our emotions and our memories. I mean, most people probably have this experience where they have that one smell that, you know, really triggers a deep emotion. Maybe it's something about what you were growing up and it's that very specific smell that it hits you again. You say, okay, man, I remember this thing in grandma's house or whatever that smelled exactly the same and it brings you back. And so as, as, as mammals, we have this deep connection between our sense of smell and our emotions and memories. And, you know, the evolutionary reason for that is probably not clearly, completely clearly understood. Yeah, I was going to ask, is, I, I was going to ask, is that, a, is that a, a function or just, you know, just how we deal with it? Like, do, do you think that there's good evidence to suggest that it's important, that, that oh, connection that, between memories and scent? I, I think that's a fundamental connection. So, we, so people have started to trace the kind of um, um, tight, tightly knit neurons that basically link, for example, the regions of the brain that are responsible for smell and the regions of the brain that, you know, encode memories or encode emotions. And so those regions, for example, are a lot more linked up than, for example, areas of the brain that encode your ability to see. And and, and so so there is this separation. Clearly, like mammals have evolved this ability to to um, couple their sense of smell to um, to these specific kinds of other things that we do. Right. Um, so there's other things that we do with scent that aren't necessarily conscious, right? So we we smell our hands when we meet strangers. This is a finding that's actually relatively recent um, that uh, researchers filmed people meeting strangers for the first time and found that people were inadvertently smelling their hands to get a sense presumably of the pheromones of this uh, of this person and whether or not uh, they may buy it, might be um you know, one of them or a potential mate or whatever. And I'm wondering, is, is it possible that there's a lot going on under the hood when it comes to scent that we haven't quite gotten to grips with yet? Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, this is at the edge of my understanding of, of scent biology and, you know, what, what scent is enabling. Um, it's clear that, you know, we can um, train ourselves or certainly train animals to be able to detect scents that ex- exceptionally... Um, low levels. So, you know, the, the, the best examples are, you know, for people who can, for example, train um, dogs that have exceptional smell abilities to sniff out, um, you know, obviously things at the airport, like whether there's a bomb or something, but also to be able to sniff out whether someone has, um, you know, certain diseases that, you know, they're, they're dogs, for example, that can sense whether someone is septic or, you know, has COVID-19 or, yeah. uh, you know, there's also these examples of people who can um, say, well, you know, my husband smelled differently a little bit, and and that's you know some evidence that perhaps there's an early stage of uh, of certain types of certain neurode- neurodegenerative disease setting in. So, um, 
there's a lot that um, that we can outwardly train ourselves to, to to do, but I think the the second layer of what are we doing all the time that's uh, imperceptible, maybe doesn't rise to the level of our consciousness, but is happening behind the scenes, um, uh, almost certainly a lot. But you know, honestly, um, that level of like deep, um, uh, you know, smell uh, psychology is one that I'm not a deep expert in. So talk to me about your research then, um, looking at uh, scent and uh, trying to synthesize it. Tell me a little bit about your work. Yeah, so the fundamental question that we've been after is this, is fundamentally a chemistry question, which is, um, you know, how does this huge panoply of proteins, these receptors that your body makes us enable scent, um, how does that actually work at the chemical level? And so the dream um, for us, maybe in, at some point in the future, would be that you could that a chemist could draw a chemical structure of a molecule, some sort of some some sort of odorant-like molecule, and then we could predict what it might be smelt, what it might be perceived as. And, and this has been very challenging because we don't know how the shape of a chemical molecule actually gives rise to the perception of a smell. So you know, you can imagine you know something like menthol, which kind of has that uh, very particular smell. Smells very different than you know something like caraway, and the molecules are different. But we can't say like this is this little shape difference in menthol and this little shape difference in caraway gives rise to this kind of perception. It's very different um, if you think about how we discover, for example, drugs against. Uh, many proteins these days. So a lot of what's happening in drug discovery is that we can take a protein target, a receptor, for example, and very accurately map its shape and, and say, okay, this is a drug that's going to bind this receptor in a very specific way and have a very specific outcome. That's really been one of the big drivers of what's amazing about modern um, uh, you know, pharmaceutical research. So our view is the same way. If we could understand how the smell receptors bind to their smells, uh, maybe one day we could actually prospectively say, here's a chemical structure of a smell, here's what it's going to be smelled like. But then the kind of more ambitious and, and, and crazy idea is that perhaps we could design smells or molecules that have smells that really haven't existed in nature before, have really different properties. Which is really kind of crazy, I suppose, but of course possible. I mean, there are um, um, perfumeries uh, around the world that are trying to create smells that we haven't done before by combining them together. And, 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 and they are relatively successful at doing that um, but I'm wondering, you're talking about, you know, how these um, scents connect to their receptors. And I'm wondering, what is our understanding of that? We spoke on this program about the the hypothetical vibration theory that um, rather than um, a shape of, a, of one of the molecules, it might actually be the vibration frequency that gives it its particular scent. What is your take on how we perceive sound when it comes to these molecules connecting with our receptors? Yeah, this is a great question. This is really what our research tackles very head on. We're very familiar with these, these notion that you, this notion that you mentioned that perhaps what our sense of what our receptors do is that they're not actually sense the shape of a molecule, but instead sense some other properties. And one of the ones that's become somewhat popular in the, in the kind of science news sphere is this idea that, you know, the vibration of a molecule actually gives rise to perception of smell. And so, so the way that we actually get at this is by, uh, if you want to understand something, it's pretty easy to just look at it directly. And and then so the the technique that we use is a method called cryoelectron microscopy. And the idea here is that um, you know if you want to look at something as small as a molecule, you can't just build a light microscope to do that. It turns out that you know, after some amount of you know, molecules are much smaller than how big light is, so you can't use it. So it turns out you can use an electron microscope. Um, to actually look at individual atoms and molecules. And so with that technique, 
we've been able to get the three-dimensional shape of an individual odor receptor that we make in our bodies um, and bound to one of these odors. And in this case, it's an odor uh, called propionate, which kind of has a, a cheesy smell, let's say. Um, and so this allows us to now map in, in, in three dimensions at very high accuracy where every single atom in the receptor and in the odorant is. And with that, we can, I think, pretty convincingly argue that it's really the three-dimensional shape of the molecule that's being read out by this receptor. Now, again, there's 399 other odor receptors in the in the human genome, so we can't necessarily extrapolate to all of those. But at least I think the, the prevailing idea that that it's really the three-dimensional shape, on, along with a few other kind of chemistry, you know, things that, that matter, drives you know why a given receptor is turned on. Uh, that that seems to be to us uh, the fundamental model. So so what's happening then? If our, there's so many molecules flying around in the air, right? When we smell something, is it like sort of a sorting box um, where you have lots of different shapes, kind of like Tetris, and they're flying about, and some of them just lock in? in exactly the right way and that triggers a, a series of messages to our brain? Is that the is that the kind of idea? And and if so, do similar molecules in terms of shape, do they smell the same? Yeah, these are great fundamental questions and problems that we don't fun, we don't fully understand. I'll tell you what the field understands to some extent. And so um, you know, we know that we can sense tens of thousands of different odorant molecules. And we only have four hundred receptors, so we can't have this one to one pairing. There can't be this idea that this is the receptor for this molecule and this is a receptor for a different molecule because that would we don't have enough receptors for the diversity right. of what we can smell. So the prevailing idea in the field is that um, we have these 400 receptors and they can be, uh, and a given odorant, a given odor molecule can actually turn on multiple receptors, uh, multiple out of those 400. So, and it's really the combination of which 400 are turned on that's then read out by the brain to give rise to perception of a smell. The best analogy I've come up with is it's kind of like a piano, right? And, and each individual receptor is like a single key on a piano. And what an odorant does is it hits the right set of keys uh, to give rise to a chord. And that chord is then read out by the brain as you know, something very specific. Um, so so that's, that, that's a prevailing you know, model that's hypothesis that's been put out in the field. And what, I, what I'll say is we don't, we fundamentally can't test that model to the same extent because we don't know what these receptors look like. We don't know their shapes. And, and so that's where our research really comes in is that we provide one of the first examples of what these receptors actually look like in their three-dimensional shape. Right. And so your work is literally sort of uh, feeling around with this electron microscope, feeling around the shape of the molecule and the receptor and seeing that they do physically lock into each other in terms of uh, the shape being really important in that in that exactly. sense of smell. So that's that that's great. So that gives us one step of confidence that this is um, uh, the way that we we smell things. What um, what is the, the what are the steps that we need to take to start synthesizing these chords ourselves and uh, and making new smells? Because um, there are lots of smells that are really bad, right? You you want to you want to be very careful which keys you're pressing on that piano. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I don't think we're, we're anywhere near the ability to be able to do this synthetic, you know, smell um, uh, approach yet. I think what we need to do for we, you know, my lab, many other labs in the field need to do for quite some time is still understand how does the chemical structure of any molecule give rise to perception of smell. And you asked earlier, you know, do two molecules that look that have very similar chemical shapes, do they always smell the same or relatively similar? 
in some cases, that's there are some groupings like that, but there are some radically, you know, you can have situations where two molecules look very, very similar, can have really dramatically different smells, or they're perceived very differently. Mm. Uh, and on top of that, another kind of uh, confounding factor or another complication on top of this is that, you know, uh, the 400 receptors that you have in your body and that I encode in my genome, they're not exactly the same. And we have, there's actually a lot of genetic diversity across the human population on, on receptors. A classic one is, you know, classic example is, you know, uh, people who uh, like or dislike cilantro. It's a, and it turns out that if you figure out, you know, why there's this liking or disliking of cilantro, it's, it's mapped down now to an odorant receptor that's different. That's coriander over here. Yeah, coriander. Yeah. And, the, uh, and, and so that's really, you know, that's one example of how human genetic variation gives rise to differences in, in smell perception. So I think for a long time, we're going to have to figure out, like, what is it about the shapes of molecules that they interact with their receptors that gives rise to this kind of thing? And then maybe the 50-year dream is if we understand this at a really fundamental level, that then gives rise to very predictively saying, okay, this is a new shape that will give rise to a new smell. You know, what you described, you know, basically taking current, what the perfumery companies do, which is taking some sort of existing odorant, maybe tweaking it a little bit, and then just having people smell it and say, okay, this smells different than any I've ever smelled. That's actually probably a more effective way of doing it, you know, at this moment. <laughs> Less exciting scientifically, perhaps. Um, one last question, Ashish, when it comes to really bad smells, there is a sense that they can sometimes be overwhelming and they are, they seem to, at least to me, to be a broader um, experience um, to, to the nose. And I'm wondering, um, do we have any idea of what these, you know, a, a, a really a rotten stench or the stench of waste? Is, is there any sense of a shape of those? I mean, you you sort of imagine that these these smells are kind of like mashing all the keys on the piano at the same time. It turns out that some of those are actually very specific. So the smell of rotten eggs, for example, it's known that um, those are probably sulfurous compounds. And, yeah. and those sulfurous compounds... Um, you know, probably have their own logic for how they lock onto a specific set of these receptors to give rise to that perception of smell. So for a lot of like very aversive smells like that, things that we just find really abhorrent, um, there probably are receptors that are very tuned to smelling those. And some of those are probably evolutionary constraining. You, know, you brought up the notion of um, sensing bad food, for example. There's probably, there are receptors that, you know, are, are responsible for smelling things that that, that bacteria make. And, and those are really tuned to that's saying, okay, there's something bad here. Um, I don't know of as, as many, you know, malodors that do this kind of mashing of many. Um, I think that just generally is a scent confusion and people, to my, to my knowledge, you know, can't really localize like this is like either even pleasurable or, 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 or you know, um, aversive. Well, really brilliant speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Ashish Manglik from the University of California, San Francisco. Great to chat to you. Thanks for having me on. There are some people who have a, a spectacular ability to um, identify scents. I'm not one. You can put a vanilla stick in front of me. And if my eyes are closed, I will have no idea what it is. And then when I open my eyes, I go, oh, of course, vanilla. Um, love to hear from you if, you if you reckon you have a very good sense of smell uh, and, and what stories you might have. You can WhatsApp us 087-1400-106. All right, it's time to look back at some of your comments from last week. And I introduced Einstein... Um, but it wasn't Albert Einstein. It was a different Einstein um, last week. And Shane Bergen told me I'd pronounced it, pronounced it wrong. It's great to have validation that for once I'm right and Shane's wrong. Um, as a German, I have to say that Germ Jonathan was right in his pronunciation of Einstein's as one texter. The surname Einstein and Einstein 
a stone, mean the same and are pronounced the same. The know-it-all interviewee was wrong, exclamation mark. High five, random texter. Um, we were also talking about climate change, um, as we do often on this program. Uh, and I was saying that we, we all need to take individual action while also using our spheres of influence to try and um, tip forward systemic change if we have that power. Mark on Twitter says, urging individuals to take personal actions to mitigate climate change feels like a no-brainer, but regardless of everything individuals can do, the impact of major intensive industries, construction, transport, extractive and energy, will make it as effective as rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Love the show. Look, uh, I, I guess it's a culture that we need to pass down to our children that maybe our grandparents had because of poverty, um, but uh, maybe the generations in between fully didn't realise what we have on, until we started to lose it. I think you're absolutely right. It is important um, for systemic change. It's important for those in industry to to, to act more um, violently and quickly uh, to turn this thing around. Um, but... I, I, I think it's unfair to say rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic because all of our children that we are teaching these values to will, of course, go on uh, presumably to be the executives of uh, oil companies or, in my case, probably um, a rock and roll band. Um, Colum and County Kerry says, Jonathan, it appears to me that quantum entanglement is merely co- calling theory a fact. That's it from us uh, on this week's podcast. Thanks to Marais O'Sullivan, Steve Daunt, Simon Keane and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday.